I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, Ethics, Application for Therapists in Early Intervention in Pediatrics, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, the largest online provider for ASHA-approved early intervention CEUs. Currently, in July of 2022, we have over 75 courses in our library, so I hope you'll check that out, and the link is in the post below with lots of information about our program. Now, if you're new to my CE courses, you can also find the link for purchasing CE credit down in the post below. Now with CE Purchase, you'll get a handout of the show just like that. this. And so if you've already done that, if you've already purchased your CE credit, please feel free to follow along with your handout. If you haven't purchased the credit, that's okay too because you can watch first and then after you're finished, go back and purchase the credit, uh, complete your forms and receive your certificate. It's an, it's an easy process and I hope that you'll check out my courses. Now ethics courses are required for professional licensure and credentialing and early intervention programs and certainly across our professional uh, therapies with PT, OT, and speech-language pathology. Now courses can focus on a review of the Code of Ethics for SLPs, which we did in the show previous to this one back in course 446, but in this ethics course we're going to take that information and really look at application. So we'll be discussing ethical decision-making by looking at three different ethical decision-making models and then applying them in some really common scenarios that I'm sure that you'll recognize as a provider for early intervention services and in other uh, pediatric settings. Now, this information is going to be most relevant for speech-language pathologists because I'm an SLP, but it's so applicable and relative for any other professional or discipline in early intervention. So let's begin by taking a look at evidence-based practice. So what is evidence-based? practice. So the definition is the National Joint Committee for the Communication Needs of Persons with Severe Disabilities, also abbreviated as the NJC, values evidence-based practice for, for all services for individuals with disabilities. So again, why is that? It's so that we can have this consistent standard. Now, most uh, of our professional organizations, uh, AOTA, APTA, and of course, ASHA, uh, also provide guidance in this area, and they are a part of the NJC. Now, the NJC views evidence-based practice as the integration of, first of all, clinical expertise and expert opinion, Secondly, external scientific evidence, so our studies, and then thirdly, the perspectives of individuals with severe disabilities and their families and friends. So we always look at that tree. And so again, why do we think evidence-based practice is important? Is to provide the high quality services reflecting the interests, values, needs, and choices of the individuals that we serve. And so again, it's three equal parts. You cannot overemphasize one part over the other and so many times we let research as we should drive our decisions when we think for this particular client and because of this particular client's autonomy or their right to make their own decisions, we may need to deviate a little bit from that for these particular reasons. And so, again, I want us always to be sure that we are backing up what we are doing with evidence-based scientific uh, studies, but at the same time, we can't discount expert opinion with that, particularly in areas where, uh, again, uh, we might not have a body of research to support exactly what we're doing based on just specific needs. So that's why single subject case designs are so important too with research, but again, they don't always get the attention they deserve. But my point here is those are three equal parts when we're looking at evidence-based practice, and that's a, I know you've seen that evidence-based triangle. We'll go ahead and put it up on the screen here. It's the best evidence, clinical experience, and of course, client values. Now, there are some newer models of an evidence-based practice tree that I, I bet you've seen in other presentations, and we'll go ahead and show this here. This one is a little more layered, and again, the tree is the icon, and uh, Shabin is the researcher who's done some uh, work in this area. It incorporates professionalism and ethics as the foundational pieces uh, for evidence-based practice. And so without an ethical foundation, 
And without that level of, again, professionalism that we're all striving to have, you know, that's where we begin with evidence-based practice. It's with that, that morality. If you're a spiritual person, that certainly plays into that with, with what your core beliefs are. So professionalism encompasses how we communicate, how we carry ourselves, how we represent our profession. And then, of course, the ethical piece of that is making the right decisions guided by a set of principles. And again, for professional organizations, like we talked about back in uh, the first ethics course, 446, uh, like ASHA with reviewing that code of ethics, we have that as protection so that it guides us as we're dealing with our our uh, dilemmas that we face in our own professional organizations and certainly with the clientele or with the families that we serve. All right, the newer model of evidence-based practice that we're talking about with the tree here is really more aligned with how our workplace decisions should be made, not from the basis of what is allowed legally, which we talked about a lot back in that last presentation uh, versus uh, and again it could come from kind of a selfish model what's right for me what is right what fits into my schedule what do what what is you know again that kind of uh, that motivation where you're not where you're not really using theory of mind and where you're not really thinking about where your clients are coming from and where their families are coming from and so again we have to make sure that all of our even our evidence-based practices decisions are driven from that foundation of professionalism and ethical behavior of doing what's right so now let's go ahead and move on and take a look at several different ethical decision-making models this is how we apply the code of ethics information that we talked about for SLPs back in show 446 now Shabin and Morris are speech-language pathologists with a specialty in ethics, and there's uh, a nice narrative summary that they did in 2004 with clinical decision-making, and it was in our uh, AsherWire publication for SLPs, and so it highlights these steps, and I like uh, these steps. So we're going to take a look at that, and then we're going to compare that with some uh, well-known models from other allied professions, nursing and physical therapy, and look at the overlap there. And so this first model that we're using is called the consensus model. Now this really, you'll recognize this, I bet, because I think this is how we as SLPs kind of think about things and how, because we specialize in communication and I think and in bringing people together and in looking at what are the best interests, how, how can we come together for some kind of decision where we really try to meet the best interest of everyone involved. And so again, consensus here is an agreement to proceed in a certain way. It's not 100% uh, an unanimous decision, nor is it really a compromise, but it's understood in the typical sense that uh, like each party has to give up something to reach an agreement. It's not really like that. It really is that we all come to the same decision in whatever our, whatever our uh, stick situation happens to be that we think okay this is this a is what can we do here are we breaching some portion of ethical decision making here you know what what can we do and so again we all come together as a team with this is the best decision that we are making together in this situation so this process always begins with with a question is this an ethical dilemma is this something that we need to ponder and think about and apply this set of clinical reasoning skills provided through the code of ethics and through some of these decision-making uh, processes that we're going to talk about, as well as some overall far-reaching con conceptual uh, designs or concepts that we're going to talk about, too, as far as kind of the basis for ethical decision-making when we're looking at how to serve the best interest of other people. And so, again, if the situation in which someone is challenging our own professional or personal integrity, we know that's an ethical dilemma. And so that's when we have to really... Uh, take a step back and define the problem and say what's going on here and so many ethical dilemmas originate from a lack of really uncovering all the facts and values involved in any given situation and then uh, lots of times 
we fail to clearly articulate the problem. And so sometimes at the beginning, it's best just to take a step back here and say, what is the real issue here? What is it that we need to, as a team, come to some kind of consensus? Now, if you're watching this as an SLP and you're an individual practitioner, you may be thinking, I don't have too much of a team to go on here. It's me and the family, and that's okay. But many, many times, children who are served in our state early intervention programs see and, and, and receive more than one area of specialty. And so we will have other team members to collaborate with and to discuss things with, even if we, if we think sometimes that it doesn't really overtly involve that person. Uh, at the beginning, it, it, with using a consensus model, you know, sometimes more heads, you know, the council of the wise, you know, there are many counselors to the wise is uh, an old saying there. And so you really, really want to be sure that you're considering everyone. So let's define what the consensus model is. So let's look at this. It says by the first thing we're going to do is gather the facts. And again, what's going on in any given situation. So before we can make a decision, we have to consider all the relevant facts, values, and beliefs with attention given to the different perspectives about the issue. So from the child's perspective, this is this problem. From the parent's perspective, this is this problem. From the therapist's perspective, as the, the provider of this kind of in question, you have a, a piece in that. And then certainly even as the other team members that who may, you may think are outliers, you, you need to think, is this decision going to affect any kind of service that they provide or any service or any, it, will there be an overlap? Will there be something that, that will also affect them or will they, will something they do affect this decision? And so again, you have to gather the facts with what's going on. The next thing to do that the consensus model uh, that uh, says should come next is get a people list. So who is affected? Who's involved? So again, all the individuals with an interest in the outcome of this situation need to be identified. And then what should we do next? We should define potential solutions and effects. And so at my house, we call this wargaming. <laughs> so we decide if we do this, what might happen? If we choose this solution, what might happen? And you really think about all the ramifications. And so you include questions like, what possible courses of action are permissible? Which ones are impermissible? Which one can, can we not do? Which ones might be absolutely necessary? And then we look at the effects. And again, the positive effects as well as the negative effects. You might think about that as benefits versus burdens of each action. And then we need to think about being flexible and helping other people on the team be flexible in how they think through each approach and identify potential solutions and we don't need to overlook any reasonable solutions and sometimes we do that we might come in with our own kind of agendas and we might complicate things when really we think with you know how can we how can we meet the best interest of all those key players is there a really simple solution that keeps everybody happy with the outcome all right and so again we also think about what immediate conflicts may arise as well as what might happen uh, down the road with any long-term implications for each possible solution and then we need to take those possible solutions and apply them to the people who are involved. And so we examine all of those things, again, using our theory of mind skills. We were thinking, what is that other person thinking about this? What, you know, empathetically, how might this decision affect them? How will they react to that? And again, the best way sometimes to gauge that is to speak with them about the potential solutions and the potential ramifications so that you're understanding where every person who's involved is uh, what their perspective is and what their position is. Then after you've done all, come up with what your potential solutions are and you've identified the pros and the cons, you apply the ethical code. And then we look to see if any portion of the ASHA code of ethics is being uh, violated and we certainly want to prevent that. And so we're naturally going to exclude anything that we feel like will be a violation of our moral and ethical responsibility. Uh, again, not only to the families we serve, but to ourselves. 
ourselves and to our profession and to the public at large. And again, so the questions addressed at this point are whether the action maintains and promotes the standards of our profession, whether it's in accordance or lines up with those ethical principles, and again, is it in the best interest of those we serve? And so the final step of this model is to determine whether the proposed course of action leads to consensus. So can everyone get behind that? Does everyone agree this is what should happen? This is what's right in this situation. And at that point, you may be finished. That deliberation may be complete and you are you are all happy with how uh, you've resolved that situation. But if it hasn't been, you might need to think through that again and look at the information and see the influences that are coming in and then assess and reassess any potential solutions or interpretations. This is sometimes where people come to the table and say, look, here's what I've thought of. Or before, I was maybe against that, but now I see your point and... I'm willing to discuss this again. And so, again, this might be where we have some, uh, maybe not renegotiation or compromise, but where we're all coming to the same opinion, where we reach that consensus. And so, again, I think this is how we make lots of our decisions, especially when we work on teams and when we work with families. We come together. Uh, and so, again, we want to make sure that uh, we're aware of those things when there is an ethical uh, dilemma to be solved and that we use our problem-solving skills and we use our communication skills to help, again, reach consensus when we have those really difficult situations to resolve. Now, let's go ahead and take a look at some of these other ethical uh, decision-making models. Now, I pulled some of these from a presentation that I liked so much on ethics, and you can find the reference in our, it's Gaylord and Brumbaugh, and so uh, you can take a look at that if you want to, and they had some great studies, so I am happy to share those with you. All right, so here we go. Park 2012 reviewed 20 current ethical decision-making models from the field of nursing. And remember we said that one of the things that we want to do here is compare one of the models that we have as speech-language pathologists to see what matches up with how other professions that are similar to ours in allied health or in, again, another kind of therapy, like we'll look at in a minute with a PT model, how they line up against ours. And so what Park did is Park took these 20 different ethical decision-making models in nursing and came up with six consistent components to effective ethical decision-making. And those are going to be listed on your handout and so take a look at those and you can see that these are the same basic components as our consensus model. Now we're going to go through those right now and take a look at that. And so again, when we're looking at uh, uh, what the PARC model is versus what our consensus model was, here, the first step is the same. Identify what the problem is. Is there a problem? What's going on here? Let's make sure that we have all those facts. And the second step there, again, is to take that a little further. Get all the facts. Gather your data here. Start to conceptualize what's going on, what the dilemma happens to be. What is our decision that we need to make here? The third step here in um, that, that Park identified as some basic components would be to develop some alternatives for analysis and comparison. And remember, we did that back with the consensus model when we were looking at, uh, define, again, uh, looking at possible solutions and coming up with, with, we could do this, we could do this, we could do that. And again, looking at that, if this happened, uh, you know, we call it, remember I said in our family, we call that wargaming it. So looking at what the, the potential solutions are versus, you know, what would the ramifications be if we made that decision. The fourth step here uh, that they uh, gave when uh, Park looked at those nursing studies is selecting the best alternative and justifying that decision. You know, sometimes it's not between right and wrong. Sometimes it's between a, a good choice and a better choice. Sometimes it's between the lesser of two evils. And so we have to really consider that. But usually, you know, we have to just make the best decision based on what we have to deal with. The next thing we had to decide based on that uh, nursing model is how do we implement our decision? What's the right way to do this? Who do we need to notify? What kind of documentation do we have need to have in place? And again, because this is a nursing 
model. They want to be sure that they're following that chain of command and then that they've got the support there uh, for why they made the decision that they did and then how they carried that out. What would be that next step required in kind of that uh, paper trail, if you will. And, you know, when we were looking at Ash's Code of Ethics, there were things that we needed to report and things that we people that we needed to notify when certain things happened the more serious things that we're talking about um breaches of conduct uh, with professionalism or if there happened to be a medical issue or something like an addiction there you know what do we need to do with that how, how do we proceed with that information and again that was consistent of course through uh, a nursing model as well and lastly the step the sixth component in effective ethical decision making is how do you evaluate and strategize what happened uh, in this situation, how can we keep this from occurring again? And this is how so many of our policies and procedures are adapted as organizations. When we look at this and we decide, oh, this came up and we, we don't want to have to deal with this again. So let's devise a policy so that we can address this for our organization so that we will have a standard way to proceed in the future and move forward. All right, so again, there's safety in using models like these for your ethical decision-making. They're thoughtful, they're analytic, they're not emotion-based, which happens so many times in the heat of the moment. We have all of our bases covered here. So uh, this next um, thing that I want to talk about with you is looking at the physical therapy model. And again, we, we, did, that. we did our consensus model when we talked about uh, the SLP model at the beginning, and then we compared it to Park's study where he looked at the uh, nursing models and what the six components there. Now we're going to go on and take a look at a physical therapy model. Now this is from 2005. It's Swisher, um, and Davis. I hope I didn't butcher that last name too badly. And they have five steps in their problem, and they're similar to what we talked about with both the other models models that we used but there's some real practical things that I think that you'll like and some uh, little tests and again I, I got this from another uh, ethics course that I took a while back and I thought it was a great one that I wanted to share with you so the PT ethical decision-making model and you have it there on your handout first recognize and define the ethical issues secondly reflect and do Kidder's test, and that's the thing, the test that gives us such practical guidance, so we want to take a look at that. Thirdly, decide the right thing to do, so you'll make those decisions and come up with your solutions. Fourthly, you'll implement, evaluate, and then reassess. And then fifthly, that's the personal reflection and the professional growth. And that's very comparable to what we just talked about with the nursing model. How, what should our policy be? How can I prevent this from happening going forward? Sometimes it's not uh, like we talked about with that big organization. Sometimes it's just you as a private clinician deciding, this is what I need to tell parents up front. I'm going to add this to my standard get to know you kinds of information that I talk about with families so that they'll know that this is how I plan to proceed in the future. And again, you might be thinking, what what are some examples of that that she's talking about? I'll give you some of those as we go. And so this is where we're really going to take uh, the models that we've already talked about. Let's look at this last one and then we'll take some case studies and start to apply these. But I want you to pay close attention during this model because this has the really specific steps that we'll use in the next section with the application. So again, the first step was the same. We talked about this, define the problem. Secondly, let's think about what's right and what's wrong here. And again, sometimes we have to move from what's most right to least less right, or less right, hopefully, to more right. And so we, we need some really practical guidance to help us do this. And so this is what I was talking about. This is from a researcher. Again, this is a PT model, so from a researcher named Kidder. And there were four steps to help us evaluate uh, and help us really determine right from wrong here. And again, in the previous course, we talked about this being ethical behavior versus legal behavior. But this takes it a step further. And again, I 
think after you hear it, it'll really give you a practical ways to move forward. And I told you I took this course or heard this in a course a couple years ago, and I liked it so much. I've thought about it since then and have really used it several different times, and, and with especially with this terminology. So let's get going so I can show you these things. So we had the the legal test, which again, the stench test, the front page test, and the parent test. So let's take a look at these. So the legal test, this is what we talked about in the last course too. Legal behavior versus illegal behavior. So again, those things are clearly delineated. You know what's against the law and what's not. And so that would be the first test that you would give any uh, any ethical dilemma that arose, even if it's, you know, again, between colleagues or within an organization or within a program or even uh, with the families that you serve there, are they asking me to do something that's illegal? You know, what, what are the ramifications here? Is this something that I can do? Again, that if the court saw it there, if this were, if this somehow became ballooned and became a lawsuit, what would the legal issues be? And I think those are sometimes pretty clear, very scary to think about those things. They're pretty clear, you know. Thankfully, most of our ethical dilemmas don't reach that proportion. And so the next test was the stench test. So what does that mean? Does it stink? Like, ooh, does it make your nose wrinkle up? So even if it's not legal, is it just the kind of thing when you hear it that you think, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Oh, that is so icky and sticky and, again, smelly. So the stench test there. The third test is the front page test. Do I want this ethical dilemma spread on the front page of the newspaper for my local town here to read all about? Do I want this to become a news story? On the news, do I want somebody, you know, with a microphone saying my name into that microphone, you know, and my picture popping up there? And so, again, those are the things that you think about and that will help you, again, get real clear <laughs> about what information you want shared or what, what, you, what your contribution was to that situation. So, again, the front page test. If everybody in my town knew about this, am I going to be happy with that? And so that's a great practical way to think about it. The last test here is the parent test. Would your mom or dad do this? What would your mom or dad do in this situation? Now, some of us have parents that we think, I'm going to go with my judgment here. Uh, but, you know, some of us don't. And again, for that, for those uh, with, with your parents, you know, really thinking about, you know, would my mom do this? Would this have been a decision that my dad made had he been in the same situation? So that that's a good way to think about it. So those four tests, the legal test, is it legal versus illegal? The stench test, does this stink? Does this make my nose crinkle up and want to, want to just get it out of here, take it away from me, like taking the garbage out? The third one was the front page test. Did I want this spread all over the front page of my local newspaper or the, you know, the top Google search there? If someone searched this, do I want that information coming up? And then lastly, the parent test. Would your trustworthy, reliable mom or dad make this same decision? So those are the four tests. All right, so the rest of the steps in this PT model. So very similar to the ones that we talked about back in that SLP model with the consensus model, and then that nursing model, the last things that we talked about with PARC. Okay, so the, the rest of these steps are real consistent with that. Decide the right thing to do, and then... Next step, do the right thing. So implement it and then get to what we therapists like to do. Evaluate, did it work? What happened with that? You know, reassess what's going on with this situation. You know, two weeks later, 30 days later, how does this look? If it's not progressing like we thought it would, if there's some other factors that have come into play or some, some of our players have changed in this situation, either changed what they were doing or what they did, sometimes the players change. You come up with a great solution for a daycare provider and the daycare provider changes. Or you come up with a great solution that, again, uh, mom or dad implemented it because of 
you know, who knows what happened to their family. They just made a family change. You know, something happened, a baby was born. Something happened with a sibling. Dad got a new job, so everybody's schedule has changed. So again, what do we have to do differently now? Our circumstances have changed, or our people have changed, or what can we do to address this differently now? And then, you know, make that happen, make those changes, keep doing your reassessment. When you come to the end of that, you get to the piece that we talked about with the personal reflection and professional growth. And remember we said in organizations like nursing, where nurses really don't do independent practices like we do as therapists, even if, you know, sometimes uh, working in a program, nurses certainly would do that as a majority versus what therapists would do. Uh, but again, just that personal and professional growth. Uh, and it, like we said, it's not always about an organization or a program. Sometimes it's just you and your own personal um, wisdom that you've gained from the situation. How do you know that you are going to proceed differently in the future? You know, what would you have done uh, next time that would have kept you out of this situation or helped a family respond differently when things happen? All right. so. Again, we're going to take this uh, checklist, Kidder's Test, with the legal test, the stench test, the front page test, and the parent test. And we're going to also take as SLPs the ASHA Code of Ethics, the principles that we learned back in show 446, so the show that came just before that. So if you haven't heard that at the end of this, you might want to go back and listen to that one too. And then we'll look at does this situation, and, and look at it from the Code of Ethics, does it violate or interfere with the responsibility to the client, the responsibility to yourself, the responsibility to the public, or the responsibility to your profession as a whole? So let's do that. So before we get into our case studies, though, let's review a few principles of ethics. And so if you've done another ethics course, you've probably heard of these concepts, but let's review them again because these are the things that we'll be talking about as we look at our case study. So the first one, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. So we'll look at those four principles and we'll define those and then again, those principles were woven throughout the Code of Ethics that we discussed back in show uh, 446. And so those, those four terms are really, really important. So in case you've forgotten what those are, let's take a look at those now. And so we will uh, put the definitions in the words up here so that you can take a look at these. And so beneficence. What is beneficence? It's probably not a word that you use every day, but I bet it's something that you think about. Beneficence is defined as acting for the benefit of others. So it deals with the aspects that we talked about a lot in the last show when we call that morality or spirituality or even looking at ethical behavior. So what was right? What was right versus wrong? And so as a principle within the broad range of ethics, beneficence is the quality that makes you want to act or respond either way, whether you're initiating or responding with generosity with love and with a genuine concern for the welfare of others. And so I believe that's probably why you became a speech language pathologist or an OT or a PT or an educator or whatever profession that you happen to be. We therapy people and teacher people. This is acting in the benefit of the others. What can I do to serve other people? What can I do to help other people? So our helping professions. And so when we're looking at beneficence as a quality and ethical considerations, this is when we start thinking about what is best for this child? What is best for this family? What can I do to benefit them in this situation? And I think that's what treatment is. I mean, I, I can't imagine that anything that we would do, we would be thinking would be a negative impact on a family or um, just a burden on a family. So what can I do to benefit this family? How can I help this family? So that's beneficence. That was our first concept. And you might think about it as the benefit for someone else. The next concept is another word that you probably don't use very much in your everyday life, non-maleficence. 
And so what is non-maleficence? It's defined as our obligation to do no harm, is uh, to not impose risk of harm, even if the potential of the risk is without malicious or harmful intent. So even if you think, well, that's, I don't even mean for that to happen, or that's, that happened by accident. That's, again, this is based on the Hippocratic Oath. So from the Greek physician Hippocrates, who really established that that uh, edict for doctors do no harm we are not going to harm our patients so it doesn't matter what else we do we're not going to make it worse and so the idea that one must not cause harm to others means refraining from acts that are offensive to others and so again sometimes it's not that you're meaning any harm but that what you're doing happens to cause someone else to be offended. And again, in this super sensitive world, we can't always be so concerned about that. But when there's, a, when there's an obvious issue there, that's certainly something we should consider as professionals. The next thing is avoiding acts that inflict unwanted pain on others. So when we know that a decision in therapy is is somehow making a negative impact with unwanted pain. And, and you might even think about it as in terms of a parent. We'll, we'll talk about some of these. What do we do when a parent doesn't want to use AAC, but we know that it, that's the long-term solution for a child? Or what if, uh, again, it's harder to come up with these good examples for speech therapy because it's hard to think of anything that we would do as inflicting harm on a child. But again, sometimes it's just um, not providing the treatment. And again, a kid's not getting better. Things aren't getting better. And so the consequence of even that family choosing not to do therapy, again, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid that harm that could potentially come from that child because the parents aren't making a decision apparently with all of their uh, all the facts there and so it's our responsibility is this do no harm making sure that we that we provide enough information so that they can make a decision where they are clearly considering all the angles and the, all the standpoints including it, it you could be potentially doing harm to your child by not participating in these services all right lastly non-maleficence is keeping away from negligent actions and again you might think about rash or or just impulsive behaviors like drunk driving things that could come cause harm to other people or generate fear among other people and so those are the things that we talk about with non-maleficence so examples of non-maleficence i've already kind of jumped the gun to giving you this one so not implementing therapy services uh, that might harm the patient and an example that I heard in the other presentation that I referred to is that let's say that you're seeing a patient and you're doing some you're doing some swallowing so you're doing some vital stem with them so some e-stem there and you've noticed that there's not any progress and so you start to think ah oh, this isn't a good strategy for them this is not helping them it could potentially harm whatever whatever level that might be and so you think i'm going to stop this service because it's not a benefit i'm not seeing the progress that i'd hoped this isn't i've got to change course here and again anytime there's something that you could potentially harm someone with you're certainly going to stop that so that's a maleficence issue and we want to stay away from that think about something more that you might think benign but not really in this age so not a sterile environment so let's say there's been a real infection control uh, brief breach or uh, a violation of that and again potential to do harm this happens all the time you uh let's say you work in an outpatient setting and mom calls and says hey we still want to come to speech today but i just want you to know that brother's running 102 degree fever your infection control policy says now, after the pandemic, it probably really says if somebody in the family is sick, please don't bring them and please don't come yourself. <laughs> please stay away until everyone is fever free for you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, symptom free, whatever your policy is. And so again, you have to think about that. You have to think about that potential to do harm. Certainly, uh, just infection control and sterilization in general has become such an issue some of the things that i send out as therapy ideas if you're on my daily email list and if you're not please sign up for that you can sign up for that at teachmetotalk.com which is my website there's a 
green banner across the top toward the top there that's you know says you know put in your email and uh, your name and then you get my free parents guide to communication development so you get that back and then you start to be uh, on my email list and so you get a daily email and sometimes especially since the pandemic started two years ago uh, sometimes therapists will email me and say you know that that therapy activity that you sent out today was completely unrealistic because you know of infection control or of you know blah 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 or whatever they say and you know I want to say too the other half of this email list isn't just therapists we have parents from all over the world and so that's wonderful and and but certainly certainly keeping our materials clean from family to family and child to child has become even more important and so when you have violations in that you have to step back and think how can I stop this from happening what can I do to make uh, this not be an issue for a family all right let's look at this third issue this is justice so what is justice justice is of course treating other people fairly and being honest within our profession with the clients that we serve and certainly with the public in general so uh, an example is making sure that we don't misrepresent information about the services we provide so not guaranteeing a parent that their child is going to talk not saying you know giving those again maybe even a false sense of hope and so uh, we have to make sure that we're also not having any conflicts of interest that we talked about like in, in the back in the past show the previous show and we have to look at making sure that we don't only serve our own professional interest or personal interest or financial interest and I started giving this example in the last show and I stopped but sometimes you know within our profession especially when someone is cautious they don't really realize how they don't really realize how few and far between the spots are. I mean, hardly there is a speech pathologist who's hardly out there really starving for work. I mean, you can usually get the work, you get the clients, and so there's hardly room for seeing someone as unjustifiably. But someone in the public might think that. She might think, or a parent or a family might think, well, she's just doing that for the money. She's just see, saying that kid has a delay so she can see him for the money. And that's hardly the case because there's so many kids that need our services and so many families that want our services that are standing in line for the services with the huge waiting list that we don't make those kinds of decisions because we know that, you know, there are five more kids waiting. And so if a family doesn't want to take advantage of that, that's terrible. And we want to help them and, again, explain the risk of not taking advantage of services when the services are available to them and easily accessible and it's going to be harder when your kid is older and these things get worse with time not better you know those kinds of things the research says that that early intervention works and we change the entire trajectory of a child when we intervene early but again we can't promise the moon with that and so when when a family see or when when you sense that a family is is feeling like you're doing it for your own personal gain, you know that's the time to step back and look at those other families that are happily waiting in line. Uh, so again, you have to really balance that and explain that to people sometimes. And so uh, again, the justice issues: how much service does this kid need? Are you over-serving him or under-serving him? Are there justice? Are there billing issues there? And again, it can go either way. So many times we way overstay and then the next kid gets cheated and the next kid gets cheated and da 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 And again, we have dishonest people in our profession just like uh, in every profession. And so again, when there are billing issues, sometimes it's a co-treat issue. You really like co-treating with the OT because it's easier that way as a speech pathologist. The OT can keep the kid you know, under the behavioral control because they we're addressing the sensory needs better than you could ever as an individual. But then again, that kid's getting half the service. And so you have to balance that. You need to think, is this just? Is this right with what's happening with this child? All right, the last term that we're going to talk about here is autonomy. Now, I've mentioned that a couple of times, but it's being able to acknowledge the patient's right to hold views that may be very different from your own. <laughs> uh, they can have beliefs and make their own choices, and it's the right to take their own actions based on their own personal values and beliefs and again even when in your opinion they're super super wrong they have the right to drop out of therapy they have the right to not do therapy 
They have the right to make any decision that they want to about their child. And again, I used this example before. What about a family who doesn't want any kind of AAC? And so they don't want you signing. They don't want any pictures. They don't want a device because they think it's going to cause that child not to talk. And they're adamant about it. I mean, they bring the grandparents in. They bring reinforcements in. And so what do you do? It's autonomy. You educate and then you let them decide. You advocate for what you know with evidence-based practice and then it's still up to them. It's, that's their choice. And so now let's take those four terms that we just talked about. The uh, beneficence, non-beleficence, autonomy, and justice. I remembered all four of those. That was great. And then let's take those tests that we did, Kidder's test, the legal test, the stench test, the front page test, and the parent test, and let's walk through these issues. And so let's take those issues that I said at the beginning, and we'll do a general issue, and then we'll break it down and do one that I bet that you've seen in your career. And if you've not seen it, I bet that you will. And so let's talk about the practical application of these ethical decision-making models. So let's take that first one that we discussed way back at the beginning, how do you respond to a family member who asks you to do something that's not in the best interest of the child? And so my example that I've used over and over, let's just take the one we were just talking about. What if the parent does not want AAC and they feel that it will cause their child not to talk? And let's just say that the parents are divided. Let's say, let's switch it up. Let's say dad is for the system and mom is against the system. So let's do it the opposite way than we usually see it, right? And so let's see that, or let's say we could do really the opposite. The grandparents are for it, but the parents are against it, right? And so we've got kind of this extended family issue going on, even the nuclear family with mom and dad. So is there a problem? Yeah, because the parents are in disagreement about what they're going to do with their child. You've made your recommendation with, hey, I think it's going to be a while before we hear some words. And I think that she's a super frustrated little girl. And I think that if we give her another way to communicate while we're waiting on these words and while we're, hey, we're still going to teach her to talk. We're still going to do everything in our power that we can do to teach her to talk because at the end of the day, I'm a speech pathologist and that's what we do. We help kids talk. But at the same time, there's a gap here. And she understands and she wants to say so much more than her little body will let her say right now. And so we've got to give her a different way. And so, you know, I want to teach her these signs. They're going to be real easy for you to remember. It's going to be, I'm going to teach you everything. We'll do a few. And so many times kids start to do these signs and then they start to talk. And that could happen. But with her, it might still be a while. So I think signs are a good idea. Or you might say, hey, you know, I think she's going to do great with this picture system, but not us just doing it willy-nilly and putting these pictures up all over the house. We're going to be real specific about it. And there's this thing that, this technique that's called the picture exchange communication system. And we're going to teach her how to trade pictures. And it's going to be easy for you because it's structured. And we're going to do it a lot in therapy. And then I'm going to teach you how to use it with her. And it'll just be in a few little things at the beginning. But eventually, I think she can use these. And it's going to be easy for grandparents to understand and nobody has to learn a lot of different signs you just look at the pictures and I think she's going to do great with it but we're going to practice it we're going to make sure you're comfortable with with it or you might do a device where you're saying look he's a whiz on that iPad he is better with that iPad than I am so let's give him some pictures on there let's look at this app or whatever program whatever you do whatever you say whether you're making your own thing or let's say it's a go talker that you've got six little choices there you say he's going to do i think he's going to do great with this and we're going to practice it and he and you're going to be so comfortable with it and we can change these pictures out and this is not the end for him we're still going to work on talking but i think it's going to be a while so let's say that you've done all that and in case you haven't heard any of my courses or any of my information those are the kinds of things that i believe in and that's 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 how I talk to families and those are kind of how my other courses go with you know I'm teaching you what I say to families and what tends to work so let's say that you've done your best you have begged your heart out <laughs> you've given them really good arguments like I just gave you there like role-playing that and they still say no so what do you do you apply this ethical decision-making process and you decide and you document and you are really clear with what you're doing step by step by step by step not so that you're scared that they're going to sue you later down the road and take you to court because they didn't do AAC and you didn't recommend it. It's not anything like that. It's just so that you make sure that you have done your due diligence and that you have provided the very best possible 
education and explanation of these things for parents. So, so that's why you do this process. And so this is these are the things that you would do in your notes. So you define, is there a problem? Yes. And you write out what the conflict is. Uh, parents are, uh, one parent is very supportive for AAC. One parent is adamantly against it. Is there a problem? Yes, because they are not deciding how to proceed with their child. And then what do I do as their therapist? What's my responsibility here? And so you define what that problem is. And then you do, you walk through the test that we talked about. So uh, the Kidder test, remember what we said with, is it legal? So is it illegal not to do AAC for a child if the parents don't want to do it? Well, no, it's not illegal. Is it unethical? Maybe, but if you've explained everything and the parents are still choosing that, what's happening? That's autonomy. They're making their own decision. But you've got to do the part where you ethically are meeting your code of ethics. And remember what we said back in, you know, uh, the last show. And again, in Asher Code of Ethics, it's in Principle One. I think it's woven throughout the principles, but it's certainly in Principle One with your responsibility to the client, and then in Principle Four with your responsibility to uh, the profession. So what are you doing here? You are explaining the benefits of AAC. You're explaining that it will absolutely not cause their child not to talk. Research, in fact, says the opposite. Research says that when kids use AAC, they are more likely to communicate. And so you say that and you document that you've said that. And so again, that's the legal test. Is it illegal to do AAC or not do AAC? No. And so again, you've passed that test. The stench test. So does this make your nose curl? Does it feel smelly to you and stinky? Yes, this child needs a way to communicate. So is this an ethical decision? Yes, because the parents can't come to a decision or the family can't come to a decision. And so you as the SLP need to say, hey, we need to give this kid a way to communicate. And it, it stinks when we're saying, hey, words are your only choice. You know, And again, you may not want to say it in that way. That may feel harsh to you. You may think of a gentler way to say that to a family. But again, you're presenting that option with... Yeah, this child needs a way to communicate. It's pretty crappy if the only thing that we're we're waiting on him to do is something he's not going to be able to do for a while. And again, you're not going to say it in that way, but you're going to say this is a really tough decision that you're saying, that you're making for that child. Okay, the next test was the front page test. And remember, we're looking at this AAC thing. And let me say, too, you may not agree with me, and this may not be relevant for you or you may think oh I would handle this a totally different way and that is fine but what I'm doing now is walking through this ethical decision making thing with these are these are the these are some considerations for you so and again you may proceed totally differently than here than I would and that's okay too but the the issue is we want to make sure that you have a consistent way for solving these kinds of problems and one of the ways to do that is to apply these ethical decision making models all right so the next test with the Kidder test is the front page test so do you want this spread on the front page of your newspaper do you want you know Susie SLP walks away in disgust as a family refuses AAC or Susie SLP says don't worry he will talk even though, you know, I, I don't know, make something up. Whatever you feel like somebody could go say or, or you know, whatever your position is, would you like it if it's spread on the front page of the newspaper? Would you like that? And so that's your legal test here. And then the parent test. Remember what we said, would my mom make this same decision? Would my wise mother who makes really good decisions, would she choose this same course of action? And so you say, would my mom explain to the family would my mom say to the family, hey, this is what evidence-based practice says. It says that we give your child another way to communicate and we can pick signs and we can pick pictures or we can pick a device, but these are the things that we think we should do while we're waiting on those words. Would your mom support that? Would your dad support that? And if again, is that yes, then you've passed the parent test. Would your dad support you saying, whatever, that's this family's nuts but they can do with it no he's not going to do that he's going to want you to try and educate that family so that's what that decision making process is going to help you do is walk through to find the more right decision and the the, the best ethical decision there so again you're going to evaluate your solutions with this AAC situation so 
What will happen if I don't do anything? What will happen if I don't do any AAC? If I never mention it again, what's going to happen? What will happen if, okay, what are the ramifications of that? And you walk through what those would be. Well, the child may not get better. You know, he may not learn to talk. He may be even more frustrated or... He may come along, the parents may change their minds in a few weeks, I'm going to keep educating them, I'm going to keep trying to persuade them with reason and with research. If they still continue to refuse or disagree or not want any part of it, that's their right, that's autonomy. And again, you are documenting that. Uh, It may be that you decide and you talk to parents and say, hey, let's do this in sessions anyway. What could happen? It may alienate a parent. They may pull that child from your services altogether. You may get reported to your supervisor or to your program director or to a service coordinator that says, hey, we told this therapist not to do it and she's doing it anyway. You may get fired, like we said before. So again, you know, is that something that you want to do? Is that a solution that you want to pursue? Probably not, right? Because you know that that can create problems for that family and for you, so it's not in your best interest. And then the fourth one, Maybe you're asking permission to trial it in sessions. Like, look, I know you're opposed to this, Dad, and I get that. But can we just try today? Let's just see how it goes. And if it's a disaster, we won't do it again. I'm never going to ask you to do anything at home that you don't want to do. But do you mind? Can I just show you this and let's see? And if he still is uncomfortable and if he says no, hey, then you know that I tried and that's my best solution there. Again, so what does your code of ethics say? You're going to provide your best treatment option for each child and you're going to consider those family values like we talked about back in principle one of that code of ethics. And again, we're going to look at other ethical principles here. We've mentioned autonomy. We've also mentioned in a roundabout way non-beleficence. We're not going to do any harm to this child. We're going to make sure that parents know what those possible ramifications are if we don't do AAC and we're waiting on words for months and months and months and months and months when really we could back up and do something else and meet a child where he is and probably be a little bit more effective. And again, we're going to determine what our action was based on all those solutions that we talked. We're going to try to maybe reach consensus, right? Like we talked about before, what is going to be the best solution for that child and so that all team members can agree this is what we should do. And then we're going to implement it and then we'll reflect, what am I going to do next time to make a family less likely to balk at AAC if that's what you decide? Or what am I going to do next time that will make a family more, uh, that, that will make uh, clear from the beginning to a family, hey, these are the things that I think we should do for this child and these are the reasons that I think should do it. What might make that easier for a family to understand and connect with on the front end so that you don't have those potential areas of disagreement with the family? So you figure out what is it that I'm saying about AAC that they don't like or what is it that they're that's just kind of well known in my community what other kind of factors and so again you're meeting that head-on you're thinking hey this isn't going to happen with the next 10 families that I discuss this with because I'm prepared and because I could handle it a little better and so that's what an ethical decision-making process will do for you it will help you walk through that all right let's talk about dealing with a family member who may be abusing a child and let's say it's not clear cut when it's clear cut you know it boy you have an ethical an ethical responsibility and a legal responsibility based on the code of ethics that you've signed from your professional organization and probably your state licensure or your state program that you've got to report those instances but let's just say it's potential abuse let's say it's something like the mom says hey i leave him at my mother-in-law she watches him while i work three days a week and listen she's a hardliner if he doesn't try to say it she doesn't give him a drink what am I going to do about that because she thinks he's just being lazy and stubborn and so what do you do you know before you freak out what do you do you go through your model you say is this a problem yes if I say something there's a problem if I don't say something there's a problem there's a problem and so again you have something that you've got to weigh that you've got to figure out you know he's not going to be able to ask for what he wants does that lead to potential physical harm yes Do you know that grandmother is really going to do that, though, cause a medical emergency? Well, no. And so, again, you walk through this. Is this legal? Is this 
illegal. And you use those things. You use the legal test. You use the stench test. Does this stink? Yes, this is an issue that I don't like where a mother is distraught because she thinks her child's nutritional needs won't be met. And somehow she thinks that I'm a part of this and that I can make this better or worse. And so again, how does that make you feel? Terrible. And so the stench test, no, you, it's icky. You, it's smelly. You want this away from you. A front page test, no, you don't want it where, you know, SLP again, walks away and says, no family, I cannot help you. You don't want that either. And so again, you've got to walk through these things with all of your solutions. The parent test, what would my very responsible mother do in this situation? What would my strong as a rock dad recommend that I say, or what rec what course of action? Would he support me, you know, educating this family, going with mom's permission and with mom going to the grandmother's house to do the session and just as lovingly and as responsibly as you can explaining that this is a child that can't talk it's not that he won't talk and that there's some things that we can do that will make it even easier for him to communicate and easier for grandmother so that she doesn't have these horrible meltdowns when she's having these power struggles that nobody ever 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 wins and so you know you think okay that might be my solution because my dad would support it if it's on the front page of the newspaper, I look like, you know, an angel trying to navigate this very difficult situation with this family. The stench test, would anybody have a problem with me, you know, really wanting to help this family and really providing the education that I can? No, everybody would say that's a noble cause. You are benefiting that family. And again, would it be illegal for you not to take any action? <clears throat> Potentially, you know, and again, you might be saying, oh, Laura, you're making way too good deal about that. Potentially, absolutely. But again, we're kind of dealing with some made up scenarios here to help you think, what is my process? How can I walk through this? And so, you know, again, you evaluate those decisions. We kind of talked about what some of those would be. You apply your code of ethics and your ethical principles. I have a principle to do no harm to this child, so I have to make sure that I am providing whatever it is available to make that happen. And again, justice. It's wrong for that little boy to be malnourished. It's wrong for that to be happening to that little boy who can't communicate. And so again, you apply these solutions and you determine your action. You say, what am I going to do? And then you implement it and then you reflect. What can I do next time? I'm going to educate about AAC up front. I'm going to figure out what happened uh, to parents about that. All right, so let's do, move on to the next one. Let's talk about a colleague who's behaving unprofessionally. Let's say that you have a therapist that works in your program who just talks so rudely and nastily about families and just having real inappropriate conversations. And again, this may not this may not ever happen. I hope it never happens to you, but let's say that it does. And so we're going to take a really really strong example so you can do this. So is there a problem? Yes, you've got someone who's behaving unprofessionally in your office. So what are you going to do? You're going to apply those tests. Is this a legal problem? Is it illegal to say bad things about people? No. Is it un unethical? Yes, absolutely. Does it make your nose curl? Yes, you're so uncomfortable. No, you don't want it on the front page where you know, uh, again, Susie SLP is out there running her mouth. You know, you don't want that. You, so this is an ethical problem. Would your mom or dad support that behavior? Would they sit and participate in that gossip and in that negativity about a family that you're serving? No. So what would your options be? You could do nothing. You could sit there and listen. You could walk out of the room. You could speak up and tell her how much her comments affect offend other people or potentially hurt other people, particularly if they're sensitive. And so again, you're reminding her of theory of mind. Hey, I don't think you realize how you're coming across to other people here. You could talk to other colleagues for a plan. Remember we said consensus where you're all coming together. Or you could go straight to your supervisor and say, hey, this is making me super uncomfortable. And so you have to look at this. What does my code of ethics say? Are there ethical ethical principles involved here. Is this beneficence? No, it's not benefiting others. Is this non-maleficence? Yeah, we want to do no harm to those families we serve. And so again, we determine what that best action might be. For you, it might be, and in one situation, it might be something different. One time it might be to the level that you think I've got to have a supervisor involved here. Another time it might just be 
professional to professional or even friend to friend. You know, I don't think you realize the impact that your words are having on other people. And so again, you give grace, but you also speak up to do what's right because that's really what we want to do with our code of ethics. Now this last one is one that we can all relate to with these new CDC guidelines for screening. What do we do? How do we address state, local, or program directives to do things that may not be developmentally appropriate or potentially even harmful for children? So we go through the model. So what did you do about those CDC guidelines that came out earlier in 2022 when they said had some ridiculous standards that we're portraying to parents as evidence-based practice when it's clearly not? What did you do? What did you say? If you say nothing, are you capitulating to that? Go through those tests, the legal tests. Is it illegal or illegal for the CDC to do that? Well, obviously not. Was there a stench test? Yes. People might believe those ridiculous standards that they set forth. Front page, yes. Would you would you like it if, the, if they said your name agreed that a child could have three words at 30 months and he's absolutely fine? The, the guidelines didn't say that. They said that most children, 75%, have three words by 30 months. We know that that's way off. We know that on average there are 15-month-olds that have 10 to 15 words, not three words at 15 months. And so, again, we see that discrepancy there. We know that that would be terrible front-page news, yet it was displayed as front-page all over Google. And you can see how adamantly I feel about this. But, again, is this an ethical problem if your if your program suddenly demanded that you use those standards as a professional, what would you do? Well, you would have an ethical responsibility, right, to talk about communication disorders. Remember, it said that back in, I believe, you know, uh, principle three, but, I, you know, where you're dealing with uh, the, your scope of practice and, and with the public. So yeah, that would be an ethical dilemma. And so again, you've got to walk through this process. Will you do nothing? Will you have discussions with your colleagues, with your supervisor, with the powers that be, the rule makers in your organization? And so you have to apply this codes of ethics and determine what your action will be. What is beneficence? How can I benefit the families that we serve? I've got to educate these people in my organization that are making decisions that may potentially harm children by not providing them services. And so again, you reflect on that. What can I do differently next time? How can I respond differently? And so I hope that I presented you, pardon me, some information about how you can make ethical decisions. I used this SLP as a reference in the last course, and I want to make it here. Teresa Rogers, who's an SLP who's done some good work with ethics, has written about ethics in the schools, and she says the two most common ethical dilemmas that clinicians face in the public school setting are lack of time to ensure delivery of quality services to students and then the pressure to provide a service or to deny a service. And remember, we talked about that, that you've got to be able to have independent, evidence-based clinical decision making ability regardless of what an administrator tells you because you're just looking at the kid. You're not looking at the program. You're not looking at any of those potential restrictions or limitations. You're just looking at what's best for that child. And again, these are the ethical decisions that we all have to face. And so I hope I've given you a way to do that. If you haven't gotten your handout for this uh, class, be sure to do that. You can find the information right here on YouTube in the post below with the link there to my website. And you can look at these models of ethical decision making. You can review that important terminology for ethics and you can apply them uh, to case studies and I hope in your everyday life. So if you haven't purchased your CE credit for this course yet, that link is below. It's going to take you straight to my website, which is Teach Me to Talk. I have a whole website full of strategies to help parents and professionals teach toddlers to understand and use language. Part of that is our big continuing education library with over 75 courses in our $5 CEU program. So be sure to check out all those links and find out uh, all the courses that you need for your continuing education requirements this year. All right, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thanks so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talks podcast.